Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. I think that you'll find today's show very interesting. You know, Jill, we started occasionally profiling interesting people, what, uh, about three, couple years ago? Right. And we haven't done this a lot, um, but but we want to do more of it because the nice thing about growing up in the Midwest, especially, I guess everyone would say this, but we, we Midwesterns, t- Westerners tend to say that that there are just a lot of interesting people that, that we've had, especially in the St. Louis area, in the history of this city. And this city has been pretty influential in that way. A lot of people forget that that St. Louis was kind of the center of the country right. up until probably into the 20th century in many ways. This week, we have somebody whose name you may not at first notice until we talk a little bit more about her relationship with University of Missouri especially. Oh, and by the way, be sure to hit the like button and the subscribe button. You know it's critical. Thank you. And I, before I give away too much, I want you to go ahead and do a proper introduction for our guest, Jill. I am so excited about our guest. Uh, she's part of our notable senior retiree segment, and I believe you will recognize her name, Dr. Blanche Tuhill, uh, the former chancellor of the University of Missouri-St. Louis, who's still very active with UMSL. We are so happy to have you here today. Well, I'm delighted to be here myself. And you're a St. Louis gale, born and raised. Born and raised. North St. Louis. North St. Louis. Where my family's from. I grew up very near Beaumont High School. Okay, and that's where you went to high school? I went to high school. The yes. St. Louis question. You know, uh-huh. It is the St. Louis question. And, and it's continued to be, right? Can yes. We, no, no. Can we ask you how old you are? I know we're not supposed to do that. Well, yeah. I'm hesitating. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, you've you've accomplished so much that we're we're left thinking, how do you pack all this in? And you still continue to be active. Well, I'm I am active, and uh, I enjoy life, and I have certain things that I want to do, and if I can, I do them. And you're well known as a historian. I am, and I am. that's you went away to school. Or you went to St. Louis University, right? No, I won a scholarship to St. Louis University, and I went through for my bachelor's degree. Right. And then I wanted to get a Ph.D., so I got a master's. But while I was getting my master's, I taught in the St. Louis public schools. Well, wait, let me stop you. Let's go back before you started college. Okay. Uh, Tell us—now, you you grew up on the north side. Yeah. So uh, you went to high school. Where did you say? Beaumont. 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 And then you graduated Beaumont, and then immediately thereafter you went to the University of Missouri? No, 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 no. I went to St. Louis University. I won ah. a scholarship to St. Louis University. Ah. I really didn't have anything to do with the University of Missouri until I came back to St. Louis in 1965 from having lived in New York City for a number of years. And I was applying for a job all over. I applied to the community college. I applied to SIUE. I applied I to, to the beginning of, <clears throat> pardon me, the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And they were hiring. They were all hiring. But the best offer I got was from the University of Missouri, St. Louis. And I wanted to research and I wanted to teach. And uh, I wanted to do service. And that was their goal. And so I took that job. Now, but you were the first to be hired, the first female to be hired 
at Queens College, right? At as that a time? woman. That's as right. a woman, right, a woman. right, right. I, 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 what happened to me was, I, I have to say it this way, the women's movement was coming along. The federal government was beginning to think about how, how to protect certain groups that were previously not protected, namely women, race, um, religion, whatever those are. Mm -hmm. But it was before they came into effect. But there was a sort of an attitude in the United States that women should be hired in jobs that they previously did not get. And I was, I was credentialed. I had written. I had taught. And so I was prepared just at the moment that the door opened. To be qualified. And I went through. Yeah. So traditionally, back then, Women held jobs like secretary or teacher no, no, or a that's nurse. That's the way I started. I could have been a nurse, a teacher, a librarian, a housewife, maybe one other thing. But when I, I, I'm the third generation in my family to teach in the state of Missouri. So I grew up with women became teachers. I loved history. I can remember when I was 10 years old, I said to a playmate of mine, she said, well, what are you going to do when you graduate from high school? And I said, well, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a master's degree, and maybe I'll get a doctorate, and I'm going to teach history. So, Who planted those seeds, though? Well, because if you sit around the dinner table with a number of women from different generations, and they're all teaching school— it's hard, and you can't do other things. You're not going to be a secretary. You're not going to be a nurse. You're not going to be a librarian. You want to be a teacher just like everybody else, and I loved history. So it was sort of um, the family encouraged it. I loved it. Um, I, I like people very much. So, but so, it was very unusual during that time oh, for was, women to hold advanced degrees. Yes, no, like it was you did. it was unusual for a woman to have a college degree well, in those yes. days. I remember. I'll just skip a little. But when I was in college and it got to be the junior year, there were very few women around at that time. They entered. During an or I, I do ramble, so you have to tell me no, when no, you don't it, want me to ramble. Your rambling's interesting. But I remember at the orientation for. Women, when I went to St. Louis U, the first song the girls sang, the older girls sang to the younger girls, was We're Here to Get an MRS. Oh. <laughs> People, I, I hope that our listeners figure that out, and they will. And, um. and I thought to myself, I was sitting there, and, and uh, I was enjoying myself, and I thought, well, I'm not here to get an MRS. I'm here to get a bachelor's degree and eventually teach history someplace. And it's not that I might not get an MRS. It wasn't I was dis I was saying no. And right. as a matter of fact, I met my husband at St. Louis U, and we've been married 62 years. Wow. So, That's um, wonderful. You know, it, but I, it just wasn't in my focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. But it it's an additional step to go from being a teacher on an elementary or secondary level to aspiring to teach in college. And while you did come from this impressive generation of teachers, you you took it to another level. Well, that's also my family. My aunt was a very quiet woman. Um, she was a school teacher in the St. Louis Public Schools. When she went to Washington University, she's a 1917 graduate of, nine, of Washington University, she was invited to enroll for the doctoral program. 
Wow. But she... That's impressive. <laughs> but uh-huh. she said to herself, and she talked it over with her mother and father, um, in those days, if you had a PhD and you were a woman and teaching in a university, you didn't make much money. And it wasn't equal pay then, it, was it? Oh, no, 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 sure no, it wasn't. no, no, no. And a lot of the men didn't make a lot of money. It was sort of a, a prestige job that maybe a lot of sons of wealthy men who were smart and wanted to lead the academic life sort of went into. Now, that's not universal, but mm-hmm. that was sort of. And so she decided she would rather teach in the high schools in St. Louis. So she refused the offer. But always in the back of my family's mind, it was not that she should have done it because they understood that that time was not right. But they always would say to the children, now, if you want to get a Ph.D., you want to get a law degree, you want to become a doctor, you want to become a dentist. Now, not for women, but, right. uh, you know, that's open to you. That's open to you. So what was it like working, you know, in the early years in a male-dominated field? I mean, did you ever feel, you know, just out of place and not accepted? Oh, I think so. I think that's part of the part of the game. But to tell you the truth, I loved history. I still love history. I love to teach. I guess if I view myself in any way, it's more of a teacher than an administrator, although I loved administration. And I had a lot of fun in administration. But um, I think I didn't realize the difficulties I would have. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I really got into um, higher education that I realized I was the only woman in the history department at Queens College. I was the first one that they had hired. Um, Now, what year was that? 1965. And so then I went on to, um, I came to the University of Missouri-St. Louis. I was the only woman in the history department. Well, I was the first woman hired in the history department. It was sort of fun because the only committee that women were on in those early days at the University of Missouri-St. Louis was the hospitality committee. (laughs) Oh, boy. We served tea, and we um, served—somebody would bring their lace tablecloth, and somebody would bring the silver service. And and I I was responsible for buying the cookies and passing the cookies. But um, we all met. And the worst thing they could have done was bring all the women together. <laughs> so, Power in numbers. So you all became a force. Girl and we power. all became a force. We right. voted for each other to get on the good committees. We, If you called anybody on the campus uh, and you needed help, and I mean by that uh, young faculty, male as well as female, they would help each other. It was a wonderful spirit. I could not have done what I did without the support of the women, but without the support of the younger men. Yeah, yeah, who who got it, yeah, who, who were got looking it. Yeah, to the future. Yeah. And I became uh, the first chair of the, of the university senate. That's how I rose. And, uh, well, wait, now let me go before that. So uh, you graduated in Missouri. Uh, then you, you ended up going to Queens College to teach. To teach. And uh, you went to Queens College. It seems like an unlikely decision. Is that because— No, no, no. My, I, I, I got married, and as all women did, or most—I should say, not say all— most women did. You followed your husband. Yeah. Right. My husband has a master's in tax law. He worked tax for the law. federal government in D.C., and then he worked for the tried the tax cases in New York, and I went with him. So he's a tax lawyer? He's, he was a tax lawyer was a tax for years, lawyer. and then a judge. But, oh, okay. but he 
you know, he, we came back to St. Louis, and um, he got a very nice job at Peabody Cole as a lawyer. Sure. And I came back and um, looked for a job. Do you consider yourself a pioneer for women, like you paid the way? I think the women who were coming along with me, we all had a sense that we had to help each other. Mm-hmm. And um, it wasn't that the, the younger faculty didn't help us too. They did, male. I don't think we... I don't think we thought of ourselves as pioneers. I think we thought of ourselves as women who had found themselves in the profession they wanted to be in, teaching subjects they wanted to teach, taking great enjoyment out of both of those aspects of life, and realized that they would have comfort from the other women and be able to build bridges that would allow them to flower. Okay. Yeah. And, and at that time, it's hard to imagine a day in which, like today, where it's, you know, the idea, my children, for example, I have two daughters who are in their mid-20s. To them, it's inconceivable that women would be disadvantaged because of their gender. Because where they are, there are more women than men in their classes, all their college classes, or at least their majors, in one medicine, one law. Who would, could you have predicted that coming in the future at that time? Was that your expectation? This is ultimately No, going? no. My expectation was that I wouldn't have trouble getting a college job in history. That was my expectation. In those days, I never... I never dreamed that a woman could be in a higher or a high administrative position in a a university. Now, that isn't true of the Catholic schools. The nuns were running the schools and the hospitals and the orphan homes forever. But it was very rare in the public sector. I think my high school, the highest woman was a counselor. So that was no expectation on my part. But what happened to me was I became the chair of the Senate, which is a very prestigious position in a university. What year was that? Um, I'm going to say 1974. Okay. And I could do the job. And a lot of people were looking for a woman who could do the job. And so I sort of became... The candidate, if you can understand that, um, of somebody if there was an opening. But I never thought about it. I didn't think about it until what happened to me was there was an opening in academic affairs to be the associate vice chancellor for academic affairs. And the interim chancellor said to me, I think you should apply. And I thought to myself, well, if I did that for a couple of years, that'd be sort of fun. <laughs> Who'd have thought? And I stayed 25 years and moved up to be chancellor. So let's get then a, a chronology here so people can appreciate this. So you started at University of Missouri. What? No, no. Oh, teaching. Yes, yeah. full time. Yeah. No, no. I started at Queens College for the City University. Of I know. But, but so you started, though, at University of Missouri at what year? 65. And you were not in any administrative role, were no, you, no, at no, Queens no, College? No, no, no. Okay, so you're you're hired in, in 60, 
five, five to teach history. Okay. And so when was the first year then that you moved into the administrative position? Was it 74, the Senate? 74. So that was the, the Senate role? Yeah. Well, no, 74, I became the associate vice chancellor for academic affairs. Uh, I went into the main administrative office. Okay. And then what was the next advancement that you saw? Well, I became the vice chancellor for academic affairs, which was in roughly 1986. And then I became the chancellor in—I became interim in 1990, but I became the full-time chancellor in 91. 91, okay. Now, did did you foresee that coming in the mid-'80s? Well, by the mid-'80s, I knew it could happen. But in, mm-hmm. if you'd have to say to me in the 60s or the early 70s, I didn't think that was at all possible. I, didn't, I never envisioned myself as an administrator. When the gentleman said to me, you ought to run for that position, I thought, well, I just never thought about that. And then I thought about it, and I thought, why not? I can go over there for three years or so and, and uh, get, a, get a different view of the place. And I could still teach. That was the other thing. I always taught something as history as I was in an administrative position until I became chancellor, and then I just couldn't teach. Right. Now, you were instrumental in the Performing Arts Center that's named after you. Yes. And tell us about that because you had to raise money for that, and you raised more than what— Yes, I did. did. Okay, tell us about how that all—what year was that? I had a choice between— Every chancellor sort of decides what they're going to stress. And um, I knew from my administrative position since 1974, and so this is 1990-91. Okay. I knew that the arts on the campus uh, were underfunded and underappreciated. Uh, And they're located, or they were located, in the College of Arts and Sciences. And the big money people in the college are the sciences, computers, math. But in arts and sciences, then you have social science next. They're political science, very well-known, very respected. Mm -hmm. And then you have the humanities. Humanities, right. And uh, the humanities, the bottom in my mind, was they didn't get enough appreciation, they didn't get enough money, and that if we could um, get them, there was no real theater on the campus. If we could get them a theater, and we were beginning to have very world-renowned speakers. We had Lech Wilvenza, we had uh, Bishop Tutu, we had um, John Hume from Ireland. We had a, a source of money that would bring in these Prominent speakers. Prominent speakers. The only auditorium we had was J.C. Penney, which seated 400 people. I remember that. Mm-hmm. So I decided I wouldn't do athletics. Uh, the women were already now getting into intercollegiate sports. They, they were, were getting that attention. <clears throat> they were that getting time. that attention. Right. Uh, they were getting uniforms of their own. They were getting playing fields for women. Slowly, that was the federal government putting pressure on universities to provide Title IX. So I decided that what we needed was an auditorium, and I decided we needed an auditorium first to beef up communications, music, theater, dance, communications, art. Mm -hmm. So... I pulled them out of the College of Arts and Sciences and made them a college. Made they meaning? 
Music, theater, yeah. okay. a, a college of fine arts and communication. Oh, I see. Okay. I pulled them out. That's then I had, I knew it was coming. We had a building on the list from 1979 to do this kind of thing for the arts. And it had finally, by the 1990s, got to the top of the list. So I knew I had a chance to get it funded by the state. So I pulled them out. And then I worked with a woman, Kathy Osborne. I don't know if you know Kathy around town. I know And she and I, we sat down and we said, now we're going to get this building. Uh, We're pulling these units out of the College of Arts and Sciences. We're going to fund them more. And we're going to form partnerships with the symphony, the opera theater, you know, I've named somebody. I made a partnership in, in Dance St. Louis. Dance St. Louis, sure. Um, all of these arts groups. With the so, idea that they would use it some? or just uh, Well, they... we would say we're building this theater. Um, dance, Dance St. Louis, Sally Bliss. What should this stage have? What should this rehearsal room have? We went to the symphony. They came out and played. We said, what should we do What's needed? And we just went run one. Th- and so then you were we, doing your homework. Yeah, we were, but we were hiring faculty. We were building them as we were giving them lift up. So we got, they got money because we gave them money to hire more faculty. And we were making them their own group so they could fight for money on their own. That's they weren't college. the bottom of the barrel in the, in the college. I'm not saying anything against the college. The, I mean, it's right. just that's – they – that was the way it was. Yeah, and, yeah back um, then, absolutely. And so getting the theater was part of that academic effort. So now where did you go for the money, though? For the, You said you thought you could get some from the state. Well, I had been working on partnerships. I had decided after looking at the budget of the University of Missouri, St. Louis, that um, if we wanted to expand— we had to get money from the community. And I'm a St. Louisan, and I sort of know how it worked. And I was able to say, the Science Center needs help in their education program. So this is getting complicated, so you have to tell me if I'm too complicated. But um, the state at that moment would make an endowed professorship which previously cost $1.1 million, 500000 So I sold endowed professorships to the community mm-hmm. who had an interest in the science center. So they would hire a faculty member, and they would work half-time for us and half-time for the science center. So I was building friends. Right. I was building friends. So by the time I had to raise money for the Performing Arts Center— I had a lot of friends. You were well-connected. I was well-connected. Right. And I was able to get, I raised, uh, the state gave us $40 million and I raised $13. And, and these friends are people who had philanthropic or corporate interests. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah, that's, those are good friends to have when you're in, right. the, in the position you were in. And it ended up that you were named, the theater was well, named that was you. that was the business community. They, they had watched me get the money, and they wrote to the board of curators and said, this should happen, and the board That's agreed. That's quite an honor. No, no it, it, well, actually, 
it was it was wonderful. I can only imagine. Yeah, and and that's how many people will know your name. Indeed. You're, it's gonna, yeah, your legacy. Yeah, yeah, and I've been in that building. It's gorgeous. Well, it's a pay carbon free building, and Ian Pay from New, the Chinese gentleman who came oh, to yeah. the United States. It's an Ian Pay building. It may be the only Ian Pay building in Missouri. I don't know that, but it's 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 a beautiful building, and and that's another story because when I took that to the board of curators, I really didn't know at that time whether we'd get it through. Although we had friends on the board of curators to the campus, and and we got it through. So, so how did you though decide on this architect? Now he's done what a, a building the, in New York City. Yeah, he he did the the Holocaust Museum Holocaust. in D.C. He did the Louvre, the 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 entrance to the Louvre in Paris. Yeah, yeah, um, that was the big controversial yeah, one. Yeah, that was yeah, hugely yeah, controversial. Yeah. But um, how did you decide on this? Well, I in, in university activity, there are always committees that, that decide. They don't decide exactly. The chancellor has to say yes or no. But I had a committee of faculty and people from the community, and uh, they came to me and they said uh, there were two or three high architecture firms, and they said, look at the plans that they want, but we want Ian Pei, who had partnered with Wishmeyer in St. Louis— and um, they said, do you want a nice building? And having grown up in St. Louis, I grew up among wonderful architecture. Even the movie theaters in those days were wonderful. If you talk to your parents or your grandparents, they'll talk about it. Oh, they were yes. grand. Yeah. And you look at the yeah. Fox, and they were all like that. There were five or six wonderful movie houses. And then you had the public libraries that were done really by— uh, Carnegie. You had the St. Louis Public Schools that were done by Billy Itner, mm-hmm. and uh, that's how my family referred to him as Billy Itner. And uh, so we had, you know, the the Wainwright Building, which was one of the first skyscrapers in the United yes. States. And and uh, <laughs> that's funny. And that was a not a Sullivan. That was a uh, was it Sullivan? It was Sullivan. Yeah, it was Sullivan. Architect. Uh, uh, I didn't know that though. It was because it was uh, structural. Yes. And it was made of, uh, I guess, structural steel? I think it was. And it went up. It went up. And think of the City Hall in St. Louis. It's a beautiful building. Yeah. It's the picture of the French um, government building, the City Hall in France, in Paris. Amazing architecture. And it's deteriorated, though, some, or it lasted a while there. It has, but it still has that charm. Oh, it does. It's a beautiful building. I'd love to see it preserved. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now you officially retired in 2002, but you still, you know, were involved with UMSL. Well, let me me take one step back. Tell us what made you decide that you were going to retire in 2002. Well, I I can say it this way. Um, There there was an organization that developed when I was coming along as an administrator, and it was a national organization— and its purpose was to prepare women who wanted to move up in academic administration to be prepared to take those jobs. And they would have workshops and state meetings and national meetings. And I was active in the state, and I was active in the national group. As they talked about it, a man got up one day, and he said, Now, you're all thinking about getting the job, what you have to know. But have you thought about how to get out of the job? <laughs> Probably no one had thought of that. <laughs> and, 
And I, it, it resonated with me. I thought to myself, yes, you know, these, we're not eternal. These jobs end. And so uh, all during my professional administrative life, I, you know, I'd think, is this the time? Is not the time? Is this the time? Is this? Well, I had gotten to the point where I felt when the, when the building, when the performing arts building was finished, I would go. And I'm sitting in a meeting. It was in May. And uh, the people working on constructing the building uh, said, well, it will be finished in September. Of? Of um, 2000. Well, it would open in 2003. Okay. But all of the architectural problems or anything else will be finished by 2002 in the fall. And I just said to myself, I've got three months to get ready to go. And uh, so then the next September, I announced I was going. So now, your husband was he uh, a factor in that decision? In other words, had was he thinking about retirement, and you all wanted to do some things together? Well, my husband retired three years before I did, so he was already retired. We both had our health. We wanted to travel. We've always had an active. We don't have children, but we always had an active family life. We had his family in St. Louis, my family in St. Louis. I had a lot of friends here from growing up here. It Deep was, roots. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was time. And I had been chancellor for, if you count it, the interim year, 13 years. You know, it, it, you get to a point, it's, it's, you go. Is that considered a long run for a chancellor? It seems like it would be. It was a very long run for a chancellor, yes. Mm-hmm. Now, oh. Tom George, who followed me, was there 16 years. So, but, but in the early days, if you lasted more than four years, it was a remarkable run. Because the boards change, the board of curators change, right? And um, as they change, you know, the president changes, and as the president changes, the chancellors change. But so it was a yeah. But you still kept your hand into in projects. At well, Umsol. I'm still writing. You're so, still writing. Yeah. And then you had the video project. I did. Where you interviewed how many was it 265 women 292 oh 92 now, wait, let me lead into this so so you've retired and did you have a plan to do these things that ultimately developed no no i'll tell you what i do in my life is i sort of know what i want to do and then i look around and if a door opens i go through so there was a man who ran the state historical society office on the st louis campus i'm so He was a very nice man. And I was doing a picture book of Amzul over 50 years. And I worked with him because he has a lot of pictures from UM St. Louis. Was this a personal project of yours? Yeah, it was a personal project. Okay. And um, I talked to him about what I wanted to do. And he said, I'd love to work with you on that. So I went through the door. Now, why did I choose this? Because I'm a historian. I spent my life sitting in libraries reading original sources. And when you do that, I guess I do it because I had a teacher when I was getting my doctorate, and he kept saying, you know, it's more interesting to read the original sources than it is to read the secondary sources because interesting things happen in life. And I do believe that. Mm-hmm. So as a historian, you know, I believe in footnotes. 
and so I believe in the original sources. Mm -hmm. So I felt that young women sometimes today don't understand that you had to be a nurse, a teacher. I had to be a nurse, a teacher, a librarian, a housewife, and they have the world open to them, mostly. Mm -hmm. And... um, I thought, I want to leave a record of the women who have come through this gigantic change that I came through and see what they have to say. So that was the, going to be the focus of this book? No, no. Well, it's not a book. It's just, I've just left the records. It's, the records. I've left it for other historians it's to come along project, and right? do it. Yeah, it's a video. And, and so it's going to be video. Oh, it is video. It's, it's, well, Completed. it's video, and, but it's on the computer right now. It's under either UMSL or it's under... Um, the State Historical Society of Missouri, because it's in their collection. And it's entitled something like Women as Change Agents, or sometimes I have like Zonta. Zonta gave a lot of um, money for that, and so did uh, the International Women's Forum. I approached women's organizations and said, I can do this for you if you can do this for me. And so this is a documentary? In a way, yes, it's a documentary. Okay, and it uh, could be. Okay, did it end up being very long? Is it fifteen minutes or? No, every woman is an hour. Wow! So this is a series. That's what and you I, meant when you yeah, said series. Yeah, and I yeah. ask the same questions of everybody, but everybody answers differently. Huh? That is very interesting. And how many people did you interview? Two ninety-two. Oh man! And for an hour? For an hour. This was a huge investment of time. Yeah. Sounds like it could be made into a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it probably could be. Yeah. Oh, I bet it could certainly be. could. And so who did, was it edited or did you just roll? No, I'll tell you what happened. We didn't edit it. We did not. So it's raw. I was really leaving it for a historian to put it into perspective and take, you know, take the information out and use some quotes. So, um, and that's what historians do. No, I, I just did it raw. What I did is I inter- I, I, I interviewed the women. The State Historical Society had a typist type it up. We had somebody in the State Historical Society on the St. Louis campus um, check it. I don't know, well, check it. And then we filed it. So you can either look at it on the computer or you can come to the office of the St. Louis campus of the State Historical Society. So this is raw footage. It's raw. And um, oh, now yeah, the footage. Now I don't know if the state, if, if the State Historical Society ever made it into the video, but the video exists. That's great. We'll have a link to it. But yes, uh, that would be wonderful. Two hundred and ninety hours, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you said you asked the same question. Was there any though exchange? I mean. It, it was a conversation like this. Okay, got it. Got but it. I, I tried to focus on just what you're doing. How did they get to college? Or how did they like school? How did they get to college? And most of them, their parents said, you will go to college. Then, you know, how did they get into these professions? And, you know. Now, what are is, these women all from the St. Louis area? Yes, Okay. And what did you find as a common denominator among these women? Uh, Well, I found a couple of things. One, I did find that most of their families wanted them to go to college. I think in the wider 
population. What I did by going to these organizations, it was a little different socioeconomic level in St. Louis. I think you will find that most parents say to the children, you have to get some kind of, what do you love to do? And how can we help you get there? I think that's what most parents do. Whether you go to college, you go to the community college, you go to a trade, or you decide to be a housewife and a mother. I mean, I think that's what do you love and how are you going to prepare yourself to go? But that's sort of what I'm asking. Why did you choose law? Why did you choose medicine? But the other thing that was uniform, so they all had their families saying to them, go to college. The second thing that was very much um, uniform was um, they all they all wanted to get married and they all wanted to have children, which I thought huh. was very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so it was it was things like that that um, and lastly, they all would find themselves often in a job where they were going to be doing the work, not get the title. And not get the money. And they all got out of that job into another company, or they moved, if it was a large company, to some other office where they could get credit for what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was very interesting. They had a sense of their well-being. Mm -hmm. And they had a sense that they had to get out of that situation. So they were prepared, though, to... Do what was necessary to move up. Yes, they were. They were all focused on moving up. Yes. So they were going to go somewhere else where their skills, their talents. Yes. Were going whether to be it recognized. was law or medicine or, you know, architecture. Um, so when they chose though these unorthodox <laughs> careers, yes, uh, was there often like a parent, even a dad, who was saying to his daughter, you know, you can be a lawyer or you can be a doctor or Whatever those. Well, that's sort of interesting. My generation, I had a very dear friend whose father was a lawyer and later a judge. And uh, she was going to college. She was a direct contemporary of mine. And she said to her father, I want to study law. And he laughed. Hmm. And he laughed. I can't imagine a father doing that with it. You'd think a father would want his daughter to be. I don't think in those days. Because you're so proud of your daughter. I I think that's another generation. I think he probably thought she'd be in the back room writing the briefs. Um, She wouldn't make the money. Uh, Well, anyway, he laughed. So she said, uh, nursing. He said, yes. So I had another friend who was a direct contemporary of mine, and she went to the university, and she said, uh, they said, what do you want to become? She said, a doctor. And the counselor said, women don't become doctors. But we're starting a um, physical therapy program. It was one of the first physical therapy programs, if not in the nation, but here. And uh, she went over and she registered for it and she used it all her life. She was married, she had children, but she was always a physical therapist. So something I would not have expected uh, from this would be the sense of frustration I feel as you describe these thwarted alternatives because you're talking to people who became successful. But yet yes. when you... when you Oh, but they mainly became mothers. Uh, those those women didn't test, didn't... Uh, I didn't make videos of all those women. Okay. Those were my contemporaries. And for one reason or another, I did a couple of them, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. 
So the women, though, who did push forward, yes, there had to be some, some, deter- some gritty determination. Oh yes, oh yes. In the face of conversations yes. like that, yes. saying, "Well, I think I'm going to go ahead and do it." Well, anyway. one other interesting thing: a lot of my contemporaries, and even 15 years younger than I was, they went back to law school when they were 35 because the law schools were beginning to open up to women applicants. That was part of Title IX. You were protected when you applied for a job, when you had the job, and when you were getting out of the job. You were protected by the federal government. Yeah, I think of uh, Phyllis Schlafly, who Oh, yes. A St. Louis. And yes. She went to law school after she had had, like, what, five yes. kids oh, or yes. something? Oh, yes, 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 right. yes. And then became this prominent activist. Yes. And, and people, you know, didn't know that she had been this— Wife and mother. Yeah, and she was similar to you. She had a, a, a husband who was a—he wasn't a judge. He was a lawyer. Yes, lawyer. Yeah, it's funny. I've She was somebody who, ironically, she was assertive— Regarding women's right to be more traditional. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. So it, it was it, still. I admire the fact that that she was so. Well, she she did affect the passing of the ERA uh, because yeah. uh, she mobilized the other side of the story. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So uh, St. Louis has produced a lot of influential women. Definitely, including this person that we're interviewing. I see. And before we yeah. wrap this up, I want to ask you. I have to ask you this. You know, you have this amazing, impressive resume, won all these awards, built a theater. What's next on your bucket list? Well, I'm finishing the—I wrote the first 20 years of the history of the University of Missouri-St. Louis from uh, 1963 to 83. And I'm now finishing the next 20 years, which were 83 to 2003. And I hope to get that published by, say, December. This December? That's my hope. I'm not guaranteeing that, but okay. that's my but you hope. you got a goal. That is a project. Uh, are you? Do you have the cooperation from the university yes, that's supplying yes, the yes, records yes, you yes, need? Yes, and, yes, 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 yes. Because that would require a lot of digging. Yes, too. no, it's, and it's, it's more of a record. What building did we put up in what year and who was the architect? And I mean, it's, it's not exactly an exciting story. It's a compendium, it's, but it's but it's it's the record. It's the record, right? Um, so I might go back to the video, uh, but to tell you the truth, I might. Um, I, I'll do a variety of things, whatever I do, and I have I'm a very sure active. I have a very active family life, and I have a very active friend life, and uh, I like to go around St. Louis and go to the botanical garden and go to the transportation museum and love the transportation. Know, I do museum. too. I, was I do too. Just there last summer. Yeah. All yeah. the old trains. Yeah, and, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's fun at Christmas when they bring out the the trains for the kids. Yeah, I've not it's been a there tradition. at Christmas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I, I like St. Louis, and I think I'm going to go down and get on the Huck Finn and, and maybe go out to the new uh, wine group out on Highway 94. I read they have a boat now on the Missouri River. Oh, is River. that near Herman or— or defiance. Well, it. Uh, you know what? I'm not sure whether it's Herman or whether it's Augusta. I'm not Augusta. Sure. Yeah, that's what I was yeah, thinking of. Yeah. Okay. So I, I like St. Louis, and and uh, I like to go to the art museum. I like to go to the symphony. I like to go to the opera theater. You know, I I like to go to the winter opera. I mean, I I enjoy life in St. Louis. You're never bored, so, are you? No, I'm really not. So so you all though are not among those who. 
I don't know, 20 years ago maybe, would have decided, okay, let's move to Naples. Uh, oh, Florida. no, no, no. We we talked about that. My husband and I did talk about that. But the reality is we've lived in other cities. We lived in D.C. and we lived in New York in our early years of married life. Um, but, you know, St. Louis, it has some world-class cultural institutions. Yeah, definitely. Right? But it's it not in a world-class Status. Do you know? Do you know what I'm saying? But it's a. I never thought of St. Louis as a place I didn't want to live. I never thought about it. When now, that's not to say if our life would have taken us to other cities, I would have been fine. But I would have come back. All our families here. We're very family focused, and we would have come back at the holidays, various holidays, and and. Uh, you know, my family would always followed us to wherever town we were and came up and visited us. So we're very close. Yeah, and I think it's true, though, that one of the advantages of having been, you know, one of the great cities in America at one time, even though we no longer are, is the legacy of that. Yes. So we have cultural institutions, like yes, you mentioned, do. the zoo and the art museum and things that are first, first rate. Right. And I think, you know... It, Bit of that is the residue of the uh, of the status that the city had. Well, did you ever think that we have wonderful higher education institutions? Oh yeah, and some of them have great specialties, and and we want to keep those. But I but I I guess my bottom line is this: I do believe in um, personal connections, and I want to live in a town that I have these roots and that I have these personal connections. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to live in a town that there are things to do that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying, you know, you never know what's going to happen in life. But I, I, if I have my druthers, I really want to stay here. Yeah, yeah. And you, you can't recreate that by moving in, in your 60s to right. to Miami or to Naples or somewhere else. You, it's, you, may, you may have... We could have created that if you'd moved there when you were 25. Right. But uh, so people do give up definitely many of those things you just mentioned when you move, the personal relationships. Very interesting, full of information. And, of course, um, I think that a lot of people would love to sit and hear more about these interviews. So I'm going to encourage people to, to hit those links. And I wonder if there'll be an alphabetical order or something. I, I have no idea. Okay, because I'm curious who else on that list, and, and I won't ask you, but they are? Okay. So uh, I'm going to have to peruse that. Okay. In any case, um, and you go by Blanche. Bla- I doc- do. Dr. Blanche Tuhill, a marvelous guest. I uh, hope we can have you back again. Maybe have you and your husband who is here incidentally waiting patiently in in the uh, studio. So uh, it's a pleasure having you on, and we look forward to being able to have you again. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next week, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.